Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Raphael. What's going on? Um, I'm self-isolating. I'm social am. distancing. Yeah. Yeah. We're not supposed to talk about that, but you can't ignore. <laughs> you can't well, really as, a, ignore. as an introduction to our listeners, I thought it would be nice for us there to be something for you to listen to that's not about. Uh, well, I can't remember. There's something going on, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for our uh, for those who are listening in the past through some sort of t- podcast time mechanism, or maybe the very far distant future, because you've uncovered this uh, in a post apocalyptic world. We are on the brink of a sort of, well, we are in the midst of a global pandemic. And so, it yeah, a lot of people have a lot of anxiety. And Raf and I were talking that, hey, should we do something specific? Like, should we review uh, Outbreak? Or what's, there's been other pandemic movies out there. But I think we were like, mm, you know what? I think probably the world's a little oversaturated with that. And so I saw this as like an opportunity for leverage over Raphael. Just kidding. (laughs) But uh, strangely, you did pick a a film to review that I would least expect. It's like, so Raphael, you are most Well, I feel like this movie movie is an overlap in in, uh, our interests. Okay, because it's like literally the most political movie of the last decade. (laughs) Yeah, but but maybe as an introduction, uh, we were texting this week and I was like oh I was listening to some podcasts that are about silly nerdy stuff and the interface details or whatever and then I find that very relaxing yeah and then I thought oh maybe we should do something about a comedy so we started texting like, which comedy and I was like I like Zoolander and then you were like by today's standards that movie is uh, very insensitive <laughs> towards everyone which is the point of comedy age. but okay yeah, it doesn't age well that's what I said yeah yeah, I don't agree, but uh, but then I was like, okay, let's do. Sorry to bother you, because uh, um, I, I I was thinking a bit about it this week, and I think the reason, uh, it, no matter what my political preferences are, it has nothing to do with the kind of movies I like. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I like about movies is if there's contradictions or something ridiculous. I don't like a movie where it's like, hey. Bad people are bad and good people are good. End of story. Mm-hmm. And so that's what a lot of uh, socialist motivated pieces of culture very often are just like, yeah. oh, do you know the guys in Wall Street? They're really bad. And then yeah, a little you watch con- the movie yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. oh man, I these mean, guys are really bad. This is a great movie to talk about that kind of thing, actually, because it's a lot, a lot of it is about that. Um, at the same time, it's also... So just so our listeners know, this is a movie that came out a couple of years ago, 2018. Can't remember yeah. when in 2018, maybe around this time. Uh, or no, initial release was actually December 7th, 2018. So in in some ways, it's only a year and a half old. Um, but it was part of, at that time, um, in that year and then the year after, which was last year, uh, quite a few films coming out that I think fit into the genre of like instead of black you've heard of black exploitation films like black splaining films where and i think it's broader than that but um just at the time when it came out there were a series of great films by great black directors talking about hey this is what it's like you mean white get people. out and black clansmen and uh... yeah so these are like movies by black people to help white people understand what it was like to be black, or at least that's one way you could look at it. Uh, versus well, black exploitation films. One of the great things of this movie is that it's very multifaceted. So, it, and 
people can come at it with many different interests. So, yeah, Silicon Valley bro culture, uh, the disadvantage of black people in the workplace, uh, female male, uh, the the idea of ambition, the idea of suppression, and then also a lot of cinematically weird, interesting tropes and uh, yeah, yeah. absurdist humor, alternate <clears throat> reality, and just a lot going on. It's it's uh, yeah. It's a great, it's a very pick. rich story. Yeah, it's a, it's a good pick. So as soon as you said it, I was like, absolutely, I love it. Yeah. Um, I rewatched it, watched a bunch of interviews. Now I'm even more into it. Um, so I don't know where to begin. Um, well, maybe we can start with the director. That uh, his name is Boots Riley, and he was in a Oakland-based rap group called The Coop. The Coop. How do you, how would you pronounce it? I think Coop. But are they still uh, performing? I think so. No. Yeah, probably it's not his priority right now because this movie did really <laughs> right, right, right. well. Yeah, this movie did do well. Yeah. And one of the weird anecdotes of the coup was that he he made an album called Party Music, as in political party or a party where you dance. And it was always very... Uh, he's kind of... Would you call him a communist or a Marxist? No, he considers himself an activist, I think. An or, activist. Okay, yeah, but, so. but he's definitely... Uh, uh, like maybe a Piketty, uh, whatever. But uh, they had that album cover where they uh, something was blowing up the Twin Towers and then 9-11 happened a few weeks later, so they had to pull yeah. that album cover. Yeah. So he yeah. has this... It, I, I'm saying this because it seems that he knows what's about to happen. I, I think he was writing this book, and as he, he wrote it as a book first, and he had this slogan in the book Make America Great Again. That was the, the slogan for the company in the movie. And he yeah. took that out. And it was later Trump started using it. So he has this weird, he can see the future, I guess. Well, I mean, I think that that's true of a lot of activists and artists. What they, <clears throat> you know, and the truth about science fiction, right, is it's just the present um, extrapolated or exaggerated, right? So you Yeah, this, this movie is, a, yeah, it's definitely a caricature of, of but, the world we live in. That was one of the things I think that um, is interesting about the film and, and, and frankly as a link to previous uh, films we've reviewed is the surrealist aspect and it comes to life in a bunch of almost like um, the way the movie presents itself is quite surrealist even in the, even in the direction in terms of like how sets are designed and cuts up you know cuts and edits happen voices and voices sets yeah and camera movements yeah. It's very Michelle Gondry like, and there's some funny stories to unpack there yeah. too. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I but, heard that story. Uh, <laughs> but I think like, um, Sh- should we yeah. just dissect the movie into parts and then talk about them? Yeah, sure. We, we, maybe we start with um, just a brief overall structure for those who haven't um, seen it. And I always feel like, you know, if you haven't seen it, well, it's pretty we, we've easy done to get. that a few times where we're like, let's do a brief description, and then it's 45 minutes. <laughs> well, the brief description is of you know there's the the lead actor, um, this guy Cassius Green, uh, who's played by um, God. Now I'm gonna like Stanfield. Yeah, I mean, I was about to like be like, this is how an amateur would describe him, the guy from uh, the show Atlanta that everyone likes. But anyway, he's uh, let's just refer to him by his character name. Cassius Green is. Um, uh, working as a telemarketer, or he actually he needs a job because he can't pay rent to his uncle, um, and he gets a job as a telemarketer at this company called um, Regal View, and he works his way up through Regal View by, well at first you know uh, he's frustrated, but then he works his way up to this 
the special high place called like the power collars, uh, you know, which is on a separate level with a, a big elevator and a secret, secret code. Um, but he works his way up basically through this business by using uh, this thing called the white voice um, that Donald, uh, that Danny Glover actually. It's funny actually. Anyway, the, the connections to Atlanta. With Bob. Anyway, um, that he gets taught by someone that appears next to him on uh, his first or second day or something like that and sees him frustrated. Anyway, through his using channeling this white voice, which is not just the voice of a white person. It's not just like a nasally voice. It's also like the voice of feeling um, like you have better things to do and that you're already successful. Um, this chill voice, basically, like chill white voice. He's able to like rise through the ranks. And then meanwhile, the rest of the employees in the business are, are organizing a union and uh, that, you know, there's just a lot of sort of labor and politics all built around this. And what they sell in the power collar room that he works his way up into is slave labor uh, primarily and weapons and things like that. But he sells evil stuff and that's how he makes more money. And then he, he is in conflict because he becomes wealthy and, he has a girlfriend who's an artist who's like still keeping it real, but is she keeping it real? And there's all this kind of interesting stuff that comes out of that. <clears throat> um, anyway, it ends. I don't know if we should, if we should give away the end. It gets increasingly so. absurd. I, so yeah, maybe a, you can give away that. Spoiler part. alert. But uh, so that he works his way up and then he gets invited to a party of the CEO. And that's when things get more weird or surreal. Um He's at the party, he's trying to fit in, and he doesn't, and uh, there's some cringy scenes we'll talk about, but at the end, the the CEO explains that he wants to genetically alter his lower-rank employees to be more productive <clears throat> and turn them into half-horses, half-people uh, that work harder. Equisapiens, which Equisapiens. is the most hilarious and, Yeah, but <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll just go <clears throat> part by part to explain it in more detail, okay. But, okay. but overall, it's it's a a guy who's trying to at first he's trying to survive and then uh, at some point he's he's thriving but then there's the conflict of if you stick together as workers you have to stick together and you can't rise up but then management hands the keys to success to a few employees which makes the protesters less powerful and okay so, so that, like, this this the, tension between the group and the yeah. individual so that, that's the fundamental infrastructure of the film that you're alluding to, and you get it really early on in the movie, which is um, stick to the script. Like, he's in a meeting with his boss, and the boss is like, um, or like, not his boss, but the guy who's hired, the hiring manager, and, he, and, he's, and he's lying to get this job, and the hiring manager's like, why are you lying? Like, anyone can have this job, but all you have to do is stick to the script, and um, sticking to the script is like really a code for the the cultural infrastructure of this film, which is about kind of code switching. And there's, you know, this author, obviously this black American author, James Baldwin, that has written a lot about this and this kind of the cultural infrastructure of this film, which is that, you know, white people don't need to worry about, um, and they do, and we'll get into that in a sec, but like traditionally those in power don't need to worry about um, how they perform, people perform for them. So code switching is, you know, if I'm from a black background or maybe I'm queer when I'm around those in power, I have to conform to their social norms. In an, and, you know, that's all kinds of things like how you dress, how you behave. Um, and in this film, they make it literal by, you know, talking about this white voice, how you even speak. And then in, in, in this idea of sticking to the script, it's like you don't go off script because to go off script 
would be considered uh, social dissent or political action. Um, and so that becomes like the kind of the base tension, I think, of the whole film, the stick to the script idea, which is, again, code for code switching, um, you know, yeah, the, code the, for... The, the scene, so basically the, the, the movie starts showing how broke Cassius is. He, he lives in a garage of his uncle. Um, he, he has a rant against his uncle that he shouldn't have property to begin with and that the people take <laughs> yeah. advantage of people. And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm your uncle. I need to pay rent. I'm behind <laughs> yeah. on my payment. So he's really broke at the point where almost homeless. And uh, his uncle is almost homeless. And then you see these TV ads for this company called Worry Free. And they basically sell you the idea that, oh, a lot of people are behind on their bills. They can't manage their life. Why don't you come to Worry Free? You get a bed, a bunk bed, and you work a bit for the company and we'll give you food and you just sign away your rights for life. So it's kind of like being imprisoned voluntarily. It's but kind you'll of never like have to worry it, about bills again. I feel like it's kind of like if we work had continued to be successful instead of like tanking, <laughs> uh, it eventually, because the founder of WeWork grew up in a commune, like eventually it's like commune capitalism, like the, those two things yeah. being conflated. Um, which and, I've and often one of the my, things yeah. is, is, is that uh, this this Silicon Valley approach to oh this is not work this is a happy fun place yeah and selling it that way but you're still um, your labor is sold for a lot more than what you're getting and anyway that's the beginning of the movie so he's, he's broke and his uncle is starting to say you know this worry free th- worry free thing looks kind of attractive to me because I'm worried about my bills yeah. And he's like, no, 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 I'll go and get a job and I'll get your rent and I'll, I'll save us. So that his first motivation is to really get Just out of the mm-hmm. almost homeless situation where they could really lose their home. And so this is set in, he, and we should say it's set sits, in Oakland, He sits right? down to, to learn the telemarketing and it's really not working. He's calling people and they hang up immediately. And that's the scene where Donald Glover is sitting next to him, and he, who is black as well. And he says, no, listen to me, you have to talk with a white voice. Mm-hmm. And then he he talks a bit like hey hello, but then he's like no no really a white voice and that's when they start using a dubbed voice so I think it's David Cross for one person and the other person is uh, Patton Oswalt so yeah. both comedians <laughs> yeah. that just sound very white yeah they, they always do but they it, it it's that's where the surrealism starts kicking in where they start lip syncing someone else's voice yeah yeah and I think um. One thing that you kind of skipped over is he's living in a garage, but it's in Oakland. And again, one, you know, one of the things about the film that was predictive is that um, throughout the movie, you can see like homeless encampments kind of out in public. But uh, I was listening to an interview with Boots Riley and he was saying at the time, actually, homeless encampments were kind of hidden away. I just projected that they would probably be out in the open. Um, and if anyone here, uh, any of our listeners live in the LA or San Francisco areas. If you live in urban California areas, uh, you probably know things have gotten a lot, lot worse. Um, and we'll probably get Very worse quickly, still. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was just in, in San Francisco and every major boulevard in the suburbs, I was in the suburbs, uh, mind you, I was in like the rich suburbs of like Palo Alto, but like all along the roads <clears throat> on both sides were campers and tents. And it's just like, <laughs> they're it, all entrepreneurs. It, it's it's great like it's really crazy though because i i mean i in, in my lifetime i just never really you, you see these things as when you're a kid 
as a child, you, you see them as projections of a dystopia in future. Well, and then I, when I, you... I grew up going to Brazil every year, and of course, you don't think that's coming to the developed world. Like you see entire neighborhoods of slums, and they're almost like cities. And you think, oh, they're going to rise out of poverty, and they're going to become more like the developed nation. And now it looks like it's more headed their way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, anyway, so um, it's just I think like this movie came out in 2018. It's important to it to know, though, that it started he started writing in 2011 and that it was uh, originally a, almost like it was the, the con- a concept album, like a, it started out as music and then it became a book and then this film. And in that decade, how much changed over that te- decade? And how I thought it was in- went the way he projected it. Yeah, it's just because also as I was watching, I was like, this seems this movie seems like a little out of date from like a workplace standpoint because it's telemarketing. But then I was thinking about it, and actually, this year uh, in my you know well last year FreshBooks like they we went heavy into telemarketing because regular marketing on the internet was getting too expensive. And there's a lot of writing about this that internet marketing is now more expensive than traditional marketing was before the internet, right? And so the benefactors of the of that, yeah, and mu- also that revenue internet marketing like, became kind of a ransom or a tax where if you don't do it, yeah, it's not like not you use control. it and you have an advantage. If you don't do it, you're ignored and you're invisible because your competitors can even buy keywords to your name. Yeah, and the whole premise of it, what originally the advantage was, it was direct to consumers. So you're cutting cutting out the middle person. You're cutting. Yeah, out, the idea like, was a small company too. could advertise targeted to people around the world with a very niche product. Yeah, directly to the consumer. But now, um, with recent IPO filings, like by a lot of these direct to consumer brands like Casper and Harry's and stuff, it, it's becoming clear that the like companies like Google and um, Facebook, who owns Instagram. They have just increased every year, like twenty percent, the cost of this advertising. Right, so everyone is doing direct to consumer, and it's actually yeah. And like, I think it was Basecamp, uh, the software that Jason Freed, yeah, Basecamp wrote a blog post about it. That they have a unique name, Basecamp. Like if you search for software called Basecamp, there's no other software called Basecamp, so there's no confusion. It's not like they they called their product Word, and there's another <laughs> word. Yeah, or it's not a generic word that is a verb in a normal language. It's yeah, not something that, yeah so they call that branded search. If you search. Google the word Basecamp, yeah. all their competitors pay a lot for the keywords and they get all the attention. Yeah. We do the same thing. We spend millions of dollars to defend ourselves against uh, QuickBooks buying against our brand name, um, So, which is Intuit, which is one of the world's largest companies. So then it's an arms race, but Google is the only one getting paid. Yeah, they get paid a, like, a lot just for doing nothing, which is like, I mean, That's obviously... That's where you want to be. Well, that's, I think that's the <laughs> yeah. tension in this movie. It's like, it seems like, oh, this is an outrage. And then the big machine reaches out to you and it's like, do you want a piece of the pie? And you're like, well, I do have to help my family. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I guess, yeah, back to the film, you know, he has, there's a, a series of ethical well, it, m- maybe decisions. Maybe we can talk about it, it, it. Really, in the beginning, there's a problem that he just feels like a loser and he starts getting this excitement using this white voice and he's like oh i'm finally good at something so it's mm-hmm. not just the money yeah 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 and he feels like not only is he good at something but he others think he's good at something and he's rewarded you know financially and it's funny because we have research at work that shows that you know like a lot of people embed their personal value in the value of the work their talents and when they're remunerated like when i receive 
money for something I do well, like say I'm an artist or say I'm a designer or a developer and I, I write code and then a client's like, that was amazing work. That that line, that was amazing work, plus the money is like actually something that helps a person identify, you know, create an identity of, of their own and 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 self-worth. Um, and so the self-worth is really wrapped up in what you do. And I think that that's one of the interesting kind of, um, you know, kind of first expressions in this film is that you know, within within capitalism, it's set up to organize your self-worth around whether you're or not you're productive, right? Is my productive labor valuable to anyone else? That is a measure of my self-worth. And then there's, of course, like other actors in the film. We mentioned uh, briefly, but he is, his girlfriend is an artist. And I think, you know, apropos to our you know, the history of this podcast and you and I being artists, it's interesting to talk about her. So she comes off like as a political artist in like even just in the way she portrays herself in the first seconds of the film. And it's pretty awesome. Like she wears these these huge earrings. I think the first time we meet her, she's wearing earrings that say murder, 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 kill, 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 or something like that. And they're gigantic. And she's, yeah, she's you know, wearing she has a, t-shirt. a t-shirt that says uh, the future's female ejaculation. And, and actually Boots Riley, um, you know, allowed her to wear that. Sh- like she dressed herself. Um, the actress who's now like, I'm like doing a terrible job. Of this. She's like, also in Westworld. Yeah. Um, yeah. She's like the CEO in Westworld, right? Isn't she? She's the CEO in Westworld. Is it? Yeah. Te- it's not. Is it? It's not Tessa Thompson. What's her name? Is it? Um, hang on. Yeah, Tessa Thompson is is the actress's yeah. name, or the actor's name. And so, um, anyway, uh, by the way, Westworld premieres on Sunday. I'm interested. We could maybe talk about that. I know we don't do TV series, but anyway, um, I digress. So we meet her, and she's an artist, and she's saying like, "Hey, you don't need like." As he's getting more and more successful in his job. She's she's like one of the first people alongside a friend of his that works at this telemarketing center that starts to say, hey, you're a sellout like you should do it my way. But meanwhile, like I think you start to see the you know, the other co uh, co-stars. So there's Tessa and there's this, there's uh, this guy, Salvador. And Tessa's name is Detroit in the film, which is, I think, again, like another like right on the nose kind of um, a city point. that went bankrupt. Yeah, and I think she says in the film, like, my parents wanted to name me something really American. (laughs) And Detroit being, like, the symbol for American manufacturing and, like, kind of, like, where, you know, the working class, it was a symbol for working class wealth and and the the working class progressing into a middle class way of life that now is gone. Anyway, and then there's this friend, uh, Salvador, played by Jermaine Fowler, that's also... Uh, working on the telemarketing side. And then there's that other guy, uh, I think a squeeze, they call him in the film, but Stephen Yoon from The Walking the union Dead. Guy. And he's organizing a union, yeah. And he goes so, from, he basically travels the country, takes shitty jobs, and then organizes the workers and then moves on to the next one. Yeah, so he's organizing this union. Um, and it seems like it, throughout the film, it's mostly he's based in inside this telemarketing center for like for the, for the premise of the film anyway, yeah. right? Like, but but yeah, he describes that he goes. But kind of place there's a place. scene with uh, Cassius in Detroit, and the, he has a nicer apartment, and they kind of start fighting because she believes that he's he's selling worry free and he's selling weapons and he's doing bad things. Yeah. And they start fighting about the blanket. And there's enough blanket for the both of them, but they still fight <laughs> about it. And she's like, I'm cold. And he just pulls. That's the type of stuff. I, I think more than explaining the plot, I'm interested in explaining yeah. why I found this movie very exciting and interesting and why a lot of woke culture, or like 
cultural artifacts with good intentions often just are not interesting. And so a scene like that, like two people fighting over a blanket, could be awful. And somehow it's great in this movie. And uh, uh, that's really what I wanted to talk to you about. It's like, do you, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? Like when, when there's art or literature or films that is just too clear in its uh, the thing it's trying to say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is like they're they it's it's didactic in that it explains kind of what it's like, but it goes to the surrealist place and then but and seemingly in that case the example you used a domestic place that makes it more relatable. So I think like the way I saw it is like, there's these surrealist moments that are more relatable than if they just told you it's like X, Y, Z. Right. So, yeah. And when I say didactic, that's what I mean. I mean, it well, one explains of, one it of to you literally. That, in an interview that Boots Riley was talking about is that poverty is, is very uncomfortable in cinema. If people really don't like to see poverty because it's, it's a really concrete fear that we all have. And we might all know someone who yeah. is, is, has a tough time and we might, you might have grown up poor. It's it's like the the clearest, scariest thing that everybody deals with. Even no matter how rich you are, people are afraid of poverty. Like you can see Jaws, but realistically, what are the odds that you're going to find a shark? Yeah, yeah. And well, so I think also yeah. But one of the things <clears throat> Boots Riley was talking about is that poverty is so expensive in movies that it's just not done. And the only way they can talk about class struggle is in something like Lord of the Rings or Star Wars where you hmm. are either on another planet or another universe or 3,000 years ahead or 3,000 years behind but there's very few American mainstream movies that are just about a poor family and and why what, what would you say is the reason it's expensive because it's like it that either I mean one of the reasons it would feels be like, like it's very uncomfortable you know how a lot of soap operas are just like in a in a let's say that old soap opera Dallas or Beverly Hills 90210 or things mm-hmm. like that and all people want is just like okay I'm not rich but I just want to be in that house for 30 minutes I think one of the things though would be that most people don't have access to the rea- the, the like the truth about it is more nuanced than the packaging and I, I just saw another movie over the weekend that did a kind of like not a great job of it called loose uh, L-U-C-E. And it's about a high school student who feels like, and he, again, it's like he's a, a black American high, co- high school student who feels like he has to be like uh, a dear to the stereotype of a successful black American. Like he has to be Obama because he's like, he can't just be a regular kid. Like he has to appeal has to, to this. Yeah. So he either has to be like, like kind of poor hip hop gangster or he has to be Obama. And he can't, why can't he just be something in between? And I think back to the James Baldwin and code switching and performing for stereotypes, like, I th- I mean, that's that's why I think that that's the cultural infrastructure of this film, which is like, hey, why can't I be whatever I want to be? And I think Tessa but, but Thompson... why does it work in this movie better than in other movies? My, my pre- the premise would be because it allows itself to go into this, like, um, surreal space where it distances itself. It doesn't pretend to know what it's like to be you. We often talk about this in advertising circles and... I'll, I'll tell like a, a tiny story, which is as we were working on some ads at work and I was working with a, like a senior creative director. He had like, he had, he had run his own agency, like a major international agency and he had been the you know executive creative director there. And we were talking about how we wanted to like surface the pain of the self-employed and like really, you know, be the people that understood them the best and show them that. And he was like, 
look, you really have to watch out because like you might not know them as well as you think. And then you're going to really turn them on Two, it might come off as if you're trying to profit from that pain. Right. Like, and that's not what you're trying to do either. That's what and, I way we ran into. Is it? Well, he, he made a picture of himself oh, in right. a similar position of the dying child at the shore. Mm-hmm. Or the, 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 the dead body of a child that was found at a shore. And he, he, took a photo of himself in the same position and then he's like I just wanted to show people like, and create empathy and everybody's like well you're selling this for a lot of money because you're just posing and using the same sensationalism yeah I think like appropriation becomes part of like or cultural appropriation becomes part of the conversation which is and the word appropriation is not that far from expropriation which is the premise of like any Marxist like critique against capital right so Um, So I think that that's why this film functions, because it's actually self-aware enough to say like, hey, we're not going to pretend we know we're going to like, we're going to talk about this stuff um, in a way that we anyone could relate to it, because there's it's such a difficult thing to talk about so literally, right? Because it's, we're talking about a very complex system. Now, that said, there are some very literal things in this film, like the union, the way they recognize, you know, they represent that and the way they represent power and the power collar and it's all arms dealing. It is so extreme um, to the point where... Well, it gets extreme where where they figure out a drug that changes people's genetic structure so they literally turn into workhorses. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But maybe we should move towards the scene of the party or... Is there something in between that's still important to talk about? Well, one thing I was talking about was the artist. And we, we assume that the artist is pure. But even uh, Detroit, the artist, his girlfriend in the movie, um, she... And she performs by the way, on the street. She has a side job where she's a, a human billboard, basically. Yeah, yeah. And she does performance art. and But even her perform, she has this big opening at a gallery and she performs. And she puts on a British accent as a matter of not just how she engages with the art world, but also um, how she performs. And so she literally, you know, they kind of literally put her in this performance mode where they, they show that, Hey, actually even Detroit who accuses accuses her boyfriend of being a sellout. She has to sell out to participate in the art world, even though the art world is supposed to be about this idea of self-expression. Well, and we that's all usually, know that's not true. Yeah. Well, I mean, you promote <laughs> the, the concept of self-expression above all else, but like, you, you know, you even have to admit as an artist that self-expression is nearly impossible in light of social norms and an audience. Yeah. So. I like this this term. It was an essay a while ago, the, the gentrification of the mind, and that there is a self-censorship, or no matter what you call it, but you, you're part of a community and you your thoughts move towards the others naturally. You're communicating with them, so you're always mm-hmm. blending with your environment. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. So I think, and that's visible in, 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 this in the movie. sense that, it, it, like, it, I think it was Seinfeld talking about it. Like, you see your friends, and you're having a bad day, and the first thing you do when they ask you is like, "Oh, I'm great," and you pretend, and then yeah. that pretending becomes a reality. It's it, sometimes, you know, I work from home, and I can get a bit too much in a negative uh, loop of my own thoughts and critiquing myself too much and then I go have lunch with someone and you snap out of it and so there's mm. there's something about pretending becoming a character I mean this is where it's always uncomfortable for me because it, talking about Personal, the point yeah. of view of someone who is not a minority but if I think of someone Jeff Koons is an example like he he's an artist but he 
created this salesperson character who's always optimistic. And then he became the character. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, because originally Jeff Koons, his whole premise was satirical kind of fame, the satirical white male ego, that this is what people yeah. want. I'm going to be the satirical salesman. But now salesman. He, he's never off. I've never mm-hmm. seen an interview where he even slightly says anything negative. <laughs> right, right, It's right. like you can ask him about World War Three, and he'll say, yeah, the world is perfect. Yeah, I mean, I, so I remember when I was in grad school, um, I had a teacher, I was in this self-reflective state. I wrote, you know, my, my essay and my thesis while I was in grad school was about self-reflectivity and the self as an object that one is like, you know, kind of molding. Um, even as even even as I was like expressing narcissism as like a critique of this mode of, of being, like I I had a teacher who came up to me. I was like, you know what, Jeremy? Like I've had a lot of friends. He was an art, an artist, a performance artist as well. You know, ten years, fifteen years ahead of me, and he was like, just watch out because like I've I've known a lot of people who became the characters they performed satirically. <laughs> yeah uh, yeah like the guy in the white turtleneck and honestly in my life as even at work whenever i get up in front of people i i i switch into my character voice because it's where i feel comfortable in front of a large group and then people assume and it was funny this week i was like really struggling with something and this guy that i was working with he's like well you know you jeremy like you switch into this like this ego thing and not everyone realizes that that's a satire when you're up in front of them especially in a work environment <laughs> and I was like but I don't know how to do it any other way because like the idea of being in front of people to me is so absurd because it's one to many that I have to poke fun at the very idea that I have something more important to say than an audience right well there's a scene in the movie where um, they're still in the the lower ranks of the Regal View telemarketing yeah and there's there's one manager who's the tough guy and he says you have to you have to bag the client. You have to make the sale, no matter what. And then okay, there's a female bag, manager. Tag him and tag him. Yeah. Yeah, and the female manager is like, "We're family. We're looking out for each other. <laughs> it's not all about money. It's about who we are, etc." Yeah. Because someone's like, "Oh, does that mean we get a raise?" She's like, "Well, not everything's about money." <laughs> and then right, as yeah. soon as the, it's this managerial style of like, "I'm not your boss. I'm your friend." And then as soon as the workers start saying, hey, we want to raise, then they're all like, fuck you. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. The management all of a sudden is not so friendly. Obviously, I'm on the inside of like planning for this current pandemic. And like, it's really interesting to see people as they navigate the discomfort of business and personal life on a global scale intervening, (laughs) like at work. And there's a managerial challenge. Should we allow people to take their chairs home with them? Like, should we give them like an extra credit for this or that? And people are like, well, you know, like, so, you know, and they're trying to like, actually, you know, out of sympathy to them, navigate, well, this is what I'm supposed to say at work, because at work, the the imperative is to generate revenue for the business and then this is what i would say if i was at home and i have a family and you know these two things colliding um are really interesting a lot of people in my community work community we have been talking about how this like pandemic might wake us up to a more communal outlook or global consciousness now whether that's true or not and it will just probably you know be appropriated in some marketing speak um it is still interesting to consider, which is like, what really is the difference? Because I grew up in a small business family. My parents had clients over on the weekend and we were supposed to act natural, right? Like I was supposed to be friends with their kids. Like there's a picture of in our, at our, at our house of a client's um, daughter and my little sister naked in a bathtub together eating corn, right? Like, (laughs) 
the fact of the matter is they ate, they were naked together eating corn and, and they, uh, seemingly great friends. Meanwhile, though, there was like an invoice that was exchanged between the parents, uh, between my dad and, and, and her father. But this, yeah, this idea of um, code switching is, is very heavy and problematic and uh, uh, relevant. Yeah. But there's yeah. even a slight code switching, like maybe the first time you want to join the soccer team and you have to act tougher than you are or the first time you fall in love and then your love interest and you have to pretend you're cooler than you are and there's a I think that that's maybe what I'm trying to talk about is like why is this movie interesting mm-hmm. more than other preachy movies and that they're playing with things that uh, are relevant to anyone from any background yeah but um I mean yeah well help me understand what's different here other than um you know, any movie, there are lots of movies out there that manage, manage metaphor or like these various stylistic kind of concepts like, you know, metaphor, analogy to get at, to open, open things up in a minute. And this is what artists would do too, right? Like if you, if you just write, you know, um, war sucks on the wall, like, cause I, I read an interview with, with Boots Riley and he, he talked about an artist that had got things terribly wrong, and he was, he's like, he was like, kind of against the art world for sometimes like fucking it up in re- in regards to political art, which you've also gone on rants about. And he was like, during the Iraq War, I went to a show in New York, and the artist had like created this show in in, and he had never experienced the war, and he had he had made it all about like there were blood and guts all over the walls, and he's like, you don't, you know, his point was the. You people don't understand the cost of war. But then Boots was like, I know people who were involved in the decision making or had gone to war. And and this artist had no idea because they were not embedded in the situation they were critiquing. They had no skin in the game. So they were just doing a surface level critique, like what they would have read about, you know, the Vietnam War, the Korean War. Not only is it a surface level critique, but it's also using the topic to get get ahead yourself. Yeah, exactly. It's like stepping on top of someone's head, you know, in the mud or something. Oh, that's my cat being fed, see, by a machine. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's what that sound was. Sorry, the robot feeding the cat. Um, but what I wanted to say was, like, ultimately, I- I've often critiqued artists who are critical of business because and but have never had like a nine to five job. Or it's like, you know, if you've never been a server at a restaurant, like don't critique the service like because you don't really know what it's like it's really hard to be to have a critical voice i think if you've boots never riley made a movie don't critique movies well you know boots riley in this film i think is very much talking from his own lived experience and the experience of the artists that he's collaborated with in his activist life as well right and so the more people you people's lived experiences you have exposed yourself to and that you expose yourself with as like a true ally or whatever maybe the better off you are not knowing that it's not as simple you know i I, i'm often critical of there being one right way to do things you know maybe what i'm thinking about because i'm thinking about at the same time the movie get out yeah get out how would you pronounce it get Um, out yes yeah (laughs) i I thought it was all right like nothing wrong Mm -hmm. with but every time as i was following the story i knew what was going to happen it was a type of movie where I just instinctively felt like I, I could predict the next 20 minutes. And once you've seen the movie, if you see it again, mm-hmm. it's, I don't think it's as interesting to see again because it's so much about the plot twist. But did you see, um, so this is Jordan Peele's film, but did you see Us, which came out after Get Out? No, no, no. Like but the, what the I was trying film. to say is that the in, in Sorry to Bother You, 
I didn't know much about the movie going in. And then I saw it and it just took all these weird twists and turns and started getting more surreal and people turning <laughs> into horses and yeah. uh, weird music and uh, dubbed voices and people switching rooms uh, in a way that's not possible. And it was just kind of a roller coaster ride, both visually and morally mm-hmm. and politically. Yeah. And I feel like a movie like Get Out is just very straightforward. It's just like, okay, these people are taking advantage, they're mean. End of story. Yeah, I guess Get Out is a more like straight line film. Yeah. What's funny about when you were talking about that is that I talked to so many people who still to this day think Get Out is a horror movie. And I'm like, uh, uh, <laughs> it's a dark comedy. It's like, I'm pretty yeah. sure you missed, you missed the entire message of the film. So I think one of the reasons for that is that um, audiences, you don't always know what um, cultural literacy they might have. And again, to my reference earlier, like that this was, well, to each this is part of a, yeah. well, yeah, but also that this was, this film was part of a series of films, including Get Out and Us later on. And Us what is was actually that one, Midnight like, Moon, or what was the title? Oh, um, you're talking about the, um, the movie that won the Academy Award? Um, yeah, you were, you were mentioning Moonlight, um, uh, Moonlight which is yeah. a Barry Jenkins film. But uh, there are a bunch of uh, films by black directors, I think, that all came out at the same time, that also um, were helping all of America kind of come to grips with like post-Black well, Lives Matter kind of um, Yeah, reality. I think Moonlight is such a different movie that it's hard to compare. But then Boots Riley himself was critiquing Black Klansmen. Um, yes. And apart from his critique... Um, if you just look at the movie as a film, Black Klansman is more of a straightforward story where you kind of know where it's going. And it's not a bad movie, but it just, it didn't, if you know the premise, it's, it's not surprising. Well, I think your, your premise, what you're saying right now, though, is that probably Sorry to Bother You will be the film that ages the best. Um, because it's, yeah. it's it, you can read into it, and it does seem somewhat timeless in that regard because it's it reaches the stylistic... Um, level of achievement that is hard hard to do. I think we should give credit to to the writing and the direction, which you know because it reaches this place where it it is actually malleable. And great art does that too. Where it does feel like it, a like a movie of of someone who's been waiting a long time, and in in that time <laughs> he was yeah. able to gather all these thoughts and ideas. So one of the things you know, Silicon Valley always makes these corny animations to explain the product yeah we like silly guitar music and uh, this is what dropbox can be in your life and then weird pencil drawing and it's cutesy mm-hmm. or casper all that direct to consumer stuff and so there's a movie a little movie clip where he's trying to the ceo of worry free is trying to explain why changing people into workhorses is fine and he's like oh we wanted michelle gondry for this video but and so in reality he wanted to ask Michelle Gondry and Michelle wanted too much money or something? Well, no, the story is actually hilarious. So he's a huge fan of Michelle Gondry. And you'll see in, throughout this movie, obviously, there's all kinds of Michelle Gondry types. The cinematic device, and, like the best example yeah. is when they're telemarketing and he says, sorry to bother you, the phone rings. And then his desk just falls into the floor, into the room of the person he's calling. And he's literally in the room with them while they're in the bathroom or having sex or whatever. 
Yeah, it's pretty awesome. And there's a bunch yeah. of like kind of hints like that that uh, I think uh, Eternal Sp- uh, Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is like Boots Riley's like favorite film or something. Um, anyway, he um, was such a big fan of Michel Gondry that there's a stop frame animation sequence in this movie that you're referring to that he wanted to show Michel Gondry because um, he actually had the credit in the film like that. That it was like created by Michel Gondry. I wanted to get permission from. Well, Michelle the, the CEO is about to show the the movie, and he's like, "Oh, we got Michel Gondry to make this movie. It was very yeah. expensive." Yeah. So apparently, though, he went to Michel Gondry and um, you know sought um, his blessing, and Michel Gondry is like, "I love this. Like, why don't you let me redo this part? And I actually am the director of this little thing. <laughs> this little thing." And and also, he tells the joke of like, "Hey, why'd you do? Are you, he's like, are you doing this because you believe that?" in the movie the richest man in the world would call me if he wanted to make the like if he had a lot of money to spend on a film and and booster was like yeah and he's like that's awesome anyway so then he's like hey i should make this for you but this is like two weeks before release at sundance and Boots Riley's like, we don't really have time. I just really need your blessing. I'm a huge fan. Michelle Gondry's like, great, great, great. Yeah, go for it. And then he's in the cab leaving on his way to the airport. And Michelle Gondry has asked his agent or someone like in his office to call Boots Riley. And they're like, Michelle Gondry's changed his mind. He doesn't want you to use his name in the film. And he's like, he's like, what the fuck? Like, this guy just told me like it was all good, and I was a huge fan of his, and I was just doing this. I don't even have to do this because out of uh, it's satire, and out of satire laws in America, I don't really have to get his permission. And um, so that, but then Michelle Gondry really wanted the paycheck, <laughs> you know. And he's already like the wealthiest filmmaker, you know. This is just a scrappy upstart filmmaker. This is Boots Riley's. Yeah, first not film. only is he a scrappy upstart filmmaker, but it's a very ideological, idealistic film. Yeah, exactly. About class warfare. And it's yeah, like Michel Gondry. Like, it's not Coca Cola appropriating Michel Gondry. So somehow Michel Gondry like, gets it completely wrong. And now they're kind of his apparently arch uh, nemeses or <laughs> something <laughs> like that. Um, so he changes but his name slightly I, I think in the that, movie. That's an example of, of uh, the tension in this movie and the weird pressions and the weird. It's just. It feels like he has a time machine and he can just see two years into the future. And uh, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that, the, anyway, like I said, I think that what you're seeing is something... Where, but, but what yeah, I mean is this conflict with Michel Gondry is like a perfect illustration sure of the whole premise of the movie. So he keeps running into reality. Sorry, I just ran into reality. Siri uh, accidentally triggered on my watch and said, I'm not sure I understand. <laughs> you're well, trying yeah, to explain exactly. Um, but yeah, so. I think that's the exciting thing. Maybe in a similar way that Idiocracy often felt like, oh, this is a bit, this is such an actual future mm-hmm. vision and this actually the world we're living in now. Here's a question for you, though. Can you think of another film like that would be further back? Because this is like, you know, honestly, it's 2018. So it's like, like I said at the outset, it's like less than two years old. And so, you know, we're talking about it being predictive of two years later. And of course, it was written in, you know, 2011. Well, Idiocracy um, sort of predicted Trump. Right. But like even further back than that, like I think, could we go back to the 1960s or 70s and, and watch a film that we felt was really going to capture? It might be generational. Well, maybe something you know? like Space Odyssey was very predictive of how we're scared of AI and where we're headed but, with voice computing. No, I think that's actually a great example. And probably the reason why, like for every decade since um, 2001 came out, it's been screened every year of every decade, right? As yeah, like and this... we're getting closer to a real hell every year. Mm-hmm. 
wonder if there are any others like that. Um, yeah, in terms of like class or race and cultural conflict, I wonder if um, there are, uh, we could probably bring attention to some other films. I, I have nothing off the top of my head in terms of like, I'm sure our listeners have tons and they're like, oh, Jeremy, well, like, why aren't you? <laughs> maybe what are you what's a good about? thing to think about is um, I think in the 70s, there were a lot of radical movies created from a radical political environment. Mm-hmm. But they were not preachy, but they were more, uh, if we're so radical and progressive, then the movies should be really ballsy and out there. So I'm, I'm thinking of a movie like uh, Le Grand Boeuf. Mm-hmm. Did, you, did you see that? No. Oh, but you just you reminded me of, of a movie, but keep going. Well, it, it, it's a movie where the, a bunch of rich people decide to go completely hedonistic and rent a castle and have prostitutes and food and eat themselves to death in an orgy. And that's the movie. So it is right, a political right, right. satire, but it's so over the top and gross and there's almost no dialogue even. It's right. just people stuffing themselves with pate. Um, or a movie like Zabriskie Point and, and like these movies that are not too direct but you can definitely feel they were from a time that was politically charged but also politically charged doesn't mean use a straight narrative it's like if our political politics are radical then our narrative should be radical in its structure but i think also that these are cyclical struggles um is important to note as well right like this is not like something that just goes away you know from one generation to the next this is something that's persisted for hundreds of years um yeah, for, for me, the horror story of, of uh, woke culture is that we have to, we can't even have satire because satire will always offend someone if you read everything literally and you end up with something like uh, Heal the World, that song where everybody's just. That's, oh, like the 1980s that, song? We yeah, are the world. Yeah, you we are, are the world. Children. Yeah, so, and everybody's holding hands and then. That's the negative outcome for me of radical politics, where it's like, okay, we have to make something that everybody's comfortable with, and you end up with just like you end up with a strawberry milkshake. It's like the least well, offensive yeah. thing. So my question for you in the movie, you know, back in the film, is like the performance that um, Detroit gives, <laughs> like as a as another as a fellow artist, um, my review of that performance was like, this is not a good performance. It's like a cliche of performance art with like literally the balloon bags full of blood. And so almost like just for a second, you know, obviously there's there's, you know, you and I are both white men talking about this film. Um, but then she is a performance artist in this film, criti- you know, pre- presenting herself as a political artist. Um, knowing that Boots Riley saw like other political art as not being successful, I think, and this is, a, I don't know, this is more of a question. Was he trying to pre- premise that her political art was also unsuccessful? Like she has, she recites a line from a movie while well, the audience throws cell phones and lambs blood at him. One of, one yeah. of the things I saw in an interview with him is that one of the failures of the left was that the only way you can have success is if you, People, the lower ranks of workers or society don't have money, so they don't. They can't buy influence. So the only way they can have power is to unite. But it's really hard to get people together and fight for one cause because there's personal sacrifice. You have to mm-hmm. uh, withdraw work Inclu- from from uh, yeah. your employer, including, and you might including go to your hard identity. times. 
Yeah, and, and your identity gets lost yeah. in the mix as well. And so what happened was that was so difficult to get people together that the left moved to the academic sphere where they're like, if we can influence ideas, maybe we can make make things different that way. And I think mm-hmm. for him, the performance art is the, the perverse example of like, let's work in the sphere of ideas and then the only audience is actually wealthy collectors. Yeah, and it, for them it's... Um it's yeah, but then I, I I don't know I struggle with this a little bit because ultimately it's a bad performance in as far as like if you were just graded on the level of this is good performance art versus bad performance well, it's art. A but, for it to, but the whole movie is a caricature. So but of course for it to function in the film, there's it has also to be a rap song in, in the movie, and it's a bad rap. So everything is yeah, bad. That, that's a great example actually. In the in in yeah in the film, nothing nothing creative is actually very good though the, the I would Michelle argue Michelle Gondry animation is a really bad Michelle Gondry animation yeah yeah it's true like <laughs> there's so much funny stuff in that animation <laughs> I think uh Detroit though um the one thing that I thought he got really right was this thing I mentioned earlier about Detroit um being allowed to dress herself for the film right because that is it was true self-expression and it's not something that if you've ever dressed someone for a commercial or a film and you've invited a stylist and they're trying to guess at what you want uh in the you know it, it's it doesn't work like i i went through this a few weeks ago and great stylists love their craft but like they were they were performing like this is what should go based on stereotypes from my lived experience working with other male creative white male creative directors you know we should dress this person in these things and and this is what i read in the script and you get to this like kind of general thing it where reminds everyone's me wearing... when you grow up and you're a little kid and every gift you get is cool and then by the time you're yeah. 10 you're like this is lame i don't want to wear this t-shirt grandma yeah i mean the the, the punchline is like all white people wear cardigans and uh khakis according to <laughs> if you're gonna if you watch commercials and you'll see and then like you know on and all you know spanish people wear like loud colors there's all these stereotypes that people will just like kind of um will will like reinforce but in the film to allow her, the actor to dress themselves i thought was a kind of brilliant um move and i'd love to see that more often like this idea that the director has control um and that the director might give control to the act some of the control to the actors i thought was kind of nice in the spirit of the film ultimately um what's what's interesting to think about is that we both grew up in a social democracy where there was a working class about a hundred years ago that got together and started something that created a lot of benefits for the middle class and uh, the 40 hour work week and uh, healthcare and uh, education and on and on. Uh, and what was the, the role of culture at that time? Because it seems even Boots Riley uh, with all of the best of his intentions, this movie is too difficult for most people and, and, and too unclear. So for most people to feel activated, this movie is still too unclear. It's like, wait, th- this movie has so many contradictions because yes, we should unite, but also I want to feel fulfilled in my ambitions mm-hmm. and uh, life is complex and I'm trying to provide for my family, but then I also want to drive a Maserati uh, but also I should look out for my fellow man and also the company will always win. So it's a very complicated message. So it, it, I think it, what you mean is gonna, it's not a very, it's not a very American film is what you mean. Like, no, or, what, what I mean is th- this, this movie is not going to help get Bernie elected. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I guess like, um, 
Like, if if you're saying, what role can culture play in in uh, political change, in actual well, results? You you, be, you know that I believe that like art has a tremendous role to play in in that regard, and and one of the ways um, it does but, is but by if like you look bringing at the last forty years. If if the the world has changed in a direction that yes, Thatcher it has, yeah. and uh, Reagan ha- have set out. It has what, changed. What it's has art done to counter that? Well, I mean, it's one of the reasons why when you said let's watch Zoolander or like whatever, I was like, I don't think that that makes sense anymore. Like it, what you can only look at it in retrospect at all of the stuff that we thought mm-hmm. was important that is now seems like completely irrelevant, right? And I think like again, but culturally, we're speaking. But I think what this speaking, movie is trying to show, and, and what Boots Rally is trying to show, is that we have progressed in in terms of what's polite and who should be included, but economically, things have gone in, a, in the opposite direction I've gotten worse yeah and and that's part of this mask of like the cool silicon valley boss saying of course we can have gay people on the board of my company and etc but at but the same time you, we're not going to pay taxes the fact that this character is even in this film because this would have been a subculture that i had access to like i'd seen ceos like that in tech right like i'd been exposed to that underbelly because from a very young age you know from the age of uh, 18, 19, um, I dealt with both good people in tech and bad people in tech. So I've had like 20 years of access to advertising and technology people, you know, two of the classes that in this movie, you would consider the, 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 uh, the evil force or the, the enemy. And the fact that they, the, the nuance was like not that far off yeah, well, is it, progress, it's not even, right? Like it's not even about evil, but it's, uh, uh corporations, their main goal is to make money, so they'll do whatever they can not to pay taxes. That's mm-hmm. logical. And then if they create an ad saying we're 100% carbon-free, you feel good about the product. Um, I mean, so yeah, two-thirds of all consumers believe in like um, brands that and, and are, are making like choices based on the values um, that the companies uh, that align with you know the companies that they choose to buy from, like so they yeah, but usually they don't they don't promote like oh we actually pay taxes. They'll do something more superficial. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very interesting like, right it, now let, because let's say that Apple looks at their yeah. strategy and they're like, how can we create goodwill? It's like, well, people carbon offset is a big thing. It'll cost us about two percent revenue, or mm-hmm. we could pay taxes and it'll cost us thirty percent revenue. I'll tell you the challenge, though, and, and the reason why it's a challenge on the other side, just from being inside of a business, is that when you're working inside of a business, you're rarely working in the position of author, like sole authorship. And if you are, you're a re- like, and you're immediately probably going to get, you know, in, you mean into businesses some kind of are trouble. a collaborative effort. Well, they unfortunately um, and fortunately are yes, because there are lots of different functions that are coordinating to try and do things, right? So no one person is, except for the CEO, and that's what's in this movie too, right? You'll sometimes see, you know, like even at Snapchat, Evan Spiegel makes two thirds of all decisions. Apparently still he has this hub and spoke model, but that's actually the opposite. A little side note is that the, the social network, that movie, the the evil character was the Winklevoss twins, the Winklevi, these rich kids who were played by one actor who played both the twins and he's the CEO in, in sorry to bother you. That's right. Yeah. Um, but it's so difficult for that kind of authority to make a decision in a large organization. You get to the point where, you know, those people exist to set what's called the vision for the company. So 
they will do the 15 years from now. They'll do the Boots Riley thing. They'll be like, this is where the world is at. This is the insight I have about the world. And I've, I've written these decks before, so I'm speaking from experience. So you'll say, this is what we've synthesized about how the world is. And you might actually draw on film, you know, and art and all kinds of things to make this point. And, you, you know, like, look at these decks and there'll be like references to the Atlantic and all this stuff, right? So that becomes like the insight layer. And then you're asked to think, okay, so what does this mean about the market? And that's referred to the mar- as the market view. And there's data that gets mixed in with that where everyone's like, okay, well, this data shows that and this data shows this, and this is like probably where things are going. And then actually you don't know what's going to happen and no one pretends they do, but you're asked to have a position very similar to how an artist behaves actually. Like what is your position in relationship to all of these other things that are going on? And so then this term positioning is what we use in corporate culture, but this guy Jack Trout invented it, but it's refined and it's probably the most commonly used like strategic decision, which is how are we going to exist in relation to everything else, the other. And again, this is like very much about corporate identity and brand, right? And so we talk about this on the individual level, but like corporations think about this on the communal level and then they try and build these values into their organization because the way they behave has to be consistent across thousands of people and when they lose control of that consistency the public's like what the fuck like google's acting in a completely different way than they're talking this makes no sense i don't trust them blah 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 so um where am i going with this except to say that like that the only the the role of the artist exists in probably the role of the CEO and a few other people or sometimes creative directors and marketing to kind of set this is the position we're going to take. Yeah, but the, the, I would say there's a big difference between uh, a CEO actually having decision power in the company. There's no decision power in that. There's no decision power. There's no, only but, influence. But, but in power. reality, a CEO can be like, let's kill that product. Let's move on with this product. Yeah, Even if they but, also have that inspirational role, but the artist but doesn't explain, have the same power to say, "Hey, let's stop this. Let's move this way with society." It's it, they, they only have that true. sort of being a muse role, and not the. Well, they have they have a lot less power, the artist, but then they have a lot more creative power, right? The, I'm just saying that the act of influence at the corporate level is actually extremely hard to do well. Yeah. Um, and there's like tons of conferences and books like I could doubt like there's your Simon Sinek's out there that like it's so hard to do as someone who does it also professionally and but you, you don't think that, professionally. That, that Zuckerberg has any power when they say let's buy Instagram yes or no he, he if he did it and he didn't have a good story behind it for why he was buying Instagram um, people but would you don't question think he his has leadership the power ability. to say yes or no on a decision like I do. That. I do think yeah. he does. He has veto power, but but often he still reports into a board of directors that if he didn't tie it back to a strategic narrative, would fire him or displace him. I mean, he, he's in, the extreme uh, example where he has yeah, more voting he has shares control. than yeah. any CEO. But uh, um, I think that it, it is an interesting point. This this point of the art performance in the movie and sort of showing the failure of that, but also knowing that this move. Here's what I mean. If you have to reach at least half of the population to get anything done like in the U.S., in, in that mm-hmm. system, you have to have a message at Star Wars scale. Well, but at Star Wars scale, by the time you get to that scale, to our point, like, and I think there's actually a Star Wars connection to this film we'll get to in a sec, but like at that scale, you have to reduce the message 
like you said earlier, yeah. people have to understand it. So yeah. you have to get it down to this place where it's some, there's no surprises. Really it's obvious. Like, like, good and, and versus people bad. from age 5 to 85 have to understand. Yeah. And then that reinforces existing power structures and stereotypes, right? So I think this would be, this movie tries to be an antidote to that type of thinking. Yeah. Uh, in a, you know, asking it, good it, questions. It's always been my position that um, I'm very happy with art being having no responsibility and no uh, pretension of changing anything. Like, what? Why? It's it's very weird to me this idea that you think you have to change anything it, 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 as an artist. Like, what? What does that have to do? With, you know what I mean? Uh, I do, but like even the visual, like the purely visual artist, the pure formalist would probably argue that their role is to make visible the invisible, like to challenge the norm to expand the visual literacy of all, you know, themselves. And then in so doing of other artists and all people, like um, if you were, for example, an abstract expressionist or uh, say you're a cubist, like post the invention of the camera, right. And you're thinking, okay, what is the role of imagery of the artist in when anything can be photographed? That question leads you to discover the the concept of multi you know multi dimensional um, imagery. Well, uh, the, the, there's always a ripple effect to whatever you do, but that what I mean is that you don't create something with a goal other than creating it. And so, if you're if let's say Boots mm. Riley made this movie because he's like, I want to be a grain of sand in the machine and and uh, <laughs> critique capitalism, but really also change something. Yeah, I think I think showing that failed art performance that is in a way it's critiquing himself because he is like I know that this movie is too weird for most people. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would just say that like you know, like Michael Moore definitely you know would be on the other end of the spectrum where he's like I definitely want to change like how Americans vote. Yeah, or and like then that. he ch- uses a more straightforward narrative. But I think you might be missing part of no, what no, this it, might but, mean this is to an interesting someone. point because it, it, yeah. it's like, okay, if I have <laughs> radical self, ideas and I tell them points. in a radical way, then they, they're yeah. not going to. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not disagreeing. I'm just saying like you you might be missing what this m- film would mean if you were either A, working class, and maybe actually you could characterize yourself that way. But B, if you're a black American, you might Yeah, but feel, I'm saying in terms of viewing numbers, it, it doesn't reach as many people. Well, this had broad release. It wasn't yeah. like a indie film. Like I just went and saw, I mentioned in the previous podcast, like Emma, and I think it's only available in one theater or whatever. You know, it's like a period drama. Mm-hmm. Um, the, this actually did have wide release, you know, and yeah. um, that's, I, I think, exceptional. And so a lot of these films that we're, we've been talking about referring to from this era had wide release where they previously, and I mentioned black exploitation films, which were not about educating white people. They were you know, movies for black people to go and see, those didn't have wide release. They were shown in, you know, B-level cinemas, uh, you know, like where they would be in, you know, you know, back, I never got to see them in the cinema. So again, I'm speaking just from what I, what I've, I've read, but they didn't get wide release. Right. So this Mm -hmm. is, that's also an interesting consideration. So it's a step forward. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's just a different step. It's like, it, and there was critique, I think when these film, like this film and others were coming out, which is like, Hey, don't confuse these as like stories for black people. These are like 
stories that this is the story that you're not hearing, like the conversations among black people that white people and other people, other populations don't have access to. And so again, me not being of that, of those groups, I can't even speak to that um, as earnestly as I'd like, obviously, but um, it, it is an exceptional, it was an exceptional moment. It continues to be an exceptional moment in the history of cinema and specifically in distribution. And that, again, that, that is interesting to you and I, because I think we talk often about how the internet was a was about multiplying voice the voices that we had access yeah. to, but those in power still have like held on to the Star Wars franchise and the you know the sequel to the next whatever ten Marvel movies are coming out as this is American culture or this is culture globally and um, yeah. so there's, I, a, I don't know. there's a a radio show called The Breakfast Club it's a sort of a hip hop culture related show but they also interview politicians and etc it's a big big show and they had Boots Riley on the show mm-hmm. uh, when the movie just came out and and the radio host is like they knew him from his his music and so they're like welcome to the show and then they all start laughing and it's like what was I watching what the hell was that and all of them just <laughs> had no clue what they what, so I think we're so embedded in weird stories that we feel comfortable with this but for a lot of people they're like what did I just watch I didn't understand anything yeah that's that's I mean that's the kind of thing that you would experience though as an artist I'm sure you've had this or at least I have many times where I've done a performance as an artist and people walk away from the performance being like uh what the hell like there's nothing to latch on to <laughs> and I honestly I love that feeling because it's it's you know it seems I mean it's not hard to create that feeling but it's like a door opening into their consciousness and like you know yeah. if they care to and because I've had the, I had this experience as a young adult like seeing my first kind of stuff that kind of blew my mind. And I was, it really opened the door to ways of thinking that I now take for granted. Um, but that's what you're hoping for. Hey, yeah. I wonder whether we should read, um, read oh, an yeah, ad. Yeah. Sorry. So we, no, no, it's cool. Um, I think ads now happen at the end of the podcast, <laughs> unless we splice this in somewhere else. But um, uh, we, we have go. an ad that came in. Thank you for sending in your ads. Um, so we're going to read an ad here. Okay, so I'm Jeremy, and I'll be reading an advertisement about a serial podcast. I'm Rav- Raphael. I've agreed to participate. Okay, Four Sisters is a podcast in tra- the tradition of The Handmaid's Tale, focusing a, focusing a panoramic political perspective through the daily lives of six women. It begins in a house on the edge of a community, racked by a state-led war on drugs, on poverty, on plague, and enforced by a hastily constructed wall. Ooh, it's about family and the practical uses of rage and addiction. Combining an evocative electronic score with cinematic sound design, it's storytelling as expressionistic headphone experience. The podcast is not a mere vehicle for political virtue signaling, but rather it takes a moral on moral complexity, trauma, and the ways these shape and deform human intimacy. You can find Four Sisters on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. As someone reading an ad, uh, reading an ad I had emailed to me, I recommend you binge this podcast. <laughs> okay, so thanks, uh, Ben McCarthy, for sending that in. Um, as always, we're really happy to help promote those who listen to this show and to build one happy community. Um, it's the least we can do. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Did, is there anything else you wanted to talk about in regards to this film? Though? Did we miss any major areas? No, I, I, I like that I still can't really put to words why I like it because there's so many – that's why I wanted to talk to you. There's, there's so many other 
cultural expressions with the same intentions that just get on my nerves. Not that mm-hmm. I don't like their intentions, but just something about it. And for some reason, this movie is very exciting. Well, this might have been like a mind-blowing movie for you in that regard. It's like a new vein of like, ooh, maybe they can be political and be good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I appreciate that you chose this film and um, knowing that I would enjoy it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like, well, I thought we had I to find an overlap. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're like, we're becoming better friends through uh, our choices for each other. Well, I, I do feel but like I, movies... If, for all the years that I've traveled and made friends in different parts of the world, movies are a part of friendship of like, what kind of movies do you like? And you start talking about it. So it is a big part of the connecting. No, it's true. And even like, uh, in families, like I'm about to go to my mom's house for her birthday. And I'm sure at some point in the conversation, we'll talk about films we've seen or TV shows we recommend. And, um, so that continues to be what this podcast, uh, the hypothesis of us, be, you know, going from talking about business cards to talking about movies was not that we cared less about art and culture and technology and business, which we talked in design that we talked about in the in our regular podcast, but we felt like movies might be a way to relate more broadly. Or maybe we didn't believe that, but or at first it, we weren't sure if that was going to work out or if it'd be true. But I think I, I think it kind of makes sense. Yeah, let's see how it goes. We just do it for a while and then. Uh... Everybody yeah. let us know how we're doing, and then uh, we'll keep going. Well, we have been getting great, um, great, uh, a lot of great messages. I get a lot of messages on Instagram, uh, and, <laughs> I, and I don't mind getting them that way, to be honest. It's usually, uh, well, last episode was about how Raphael really trashed my choice, <laughs> and he really <laughs> tore it up uh, and you know dug in. Uh, but uh, yeah, I love hearing what you th- who you think won or lost. I just can't this help is myself. not about winning and losing. <laughs> Um, I think each time we're all, you know, we, at first we were just going to review stuff that's recent, but I think what's more interesting is for us to pick, um, works that are culturally, uh, relevant in some manner. I don't know. We're just going to keep trying different things. So don't expect, I guess, expect the unexpected is what we've always said with the podcast, right? Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. If we, if it gets boring or repetitive and I can already see some patterns in the things we're talking about, we might have to throw in some new ideas, but, um, Please let us know, and if you have suggestions for how we can make it better, like maybe Raph getting a better microphone um, or a more soothing voice. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> this is me, me trying to get revenge for last week. But uh, uh, anyway, thank you for listening, and um, we'll be back as soon as we can. Raph is still in the Netherlands. Um, we're hopeful yeah, that he gets back He's supposed to fly safe. back next week if the world still exists. Yeah, but he says that people. You said you were telling me earlier that people are still out uh, having like aperol spritz in the sunlight. Um, oh, the people in the yeah. Netherlands are pretending nothing's wrong, so I I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, that's the classic uh, Dutch way. And <laughs> here in Canada, everyone is like self isolating, and they're like, I, I get like an email every few hours about, hey, remember this is about what's good for the whole. You know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Like, just keep to mm. yourself and. Don't go out. Um, But anyway, if you're out there and you're lonely, it's okay. Listen uh, to us. Send us a note. Try and connect. Um, It could be isolating. It could be worrying. But um, hopefully this has been helpful uh, to your day. Yeah. Take it easy. Take it easy. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Hey, young blood. Let me give you a tip. Use your white voice. Man, I ain't got no white voice. Oh, come on. You know what I mean. You have a white voice in there. You can use it. 
It's like we getting pulled over by the police. Oh, no, I just use my regular voice when that happens. I just say, back the fuck up off the car and don't nobody All get out. Right, All man, I'm just trying to give you some game. You want to make some money here? Then read the script with a white voice. People say I talk with a white voice anyway, so why ain't it helping me out? Well, you don't talk white enough. I'm not talking about Will Smith's wife. I'm talking about the real deal. Like this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer, this is Langston from Regal View. I didn't catch you at the wrong time, did I? <laughs> 